Welcome to episode 26 of History of the Marine Corps, the Penobscot Expedition, part 2. Our last episode covered the start of the Penobscot Expedition. We went over some of the events leading up to this battle, as well as some of the challenges land units and naval forces were facing. This episode will dive deeper into the actions by American military leaders that potentially cost lives and the loss of what should have been an easy win for the Continental military. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Our last episode ended discussing the conflict the Continental Navy and Continental officers were having regarding the attack plan. Army commanders preferred to attack the British Navy first. Americans had the superior naval force in the Penobscot, and removing the British threat allowed a smoother amphibious landing. The Continental Navy officers wanted the Marines and Army to go in first, overrun the fort, and come in after to destroy the British Navy. But this approach had its faults. There wasn't a landing zone with an easy path to the fort. The Army and Marines would have to climb steep cliffs, slowly organize at the top of those cliffs, and then head towards the target. Despite these challenges, the Navy insisted on their approach and refused to discuss the plan further. They made it clear land units would go in first. Commodore Saltonstall was also dealing with tension from his privateer counterparts. They were frustrated with the amount of time taken to make a decision, and privateers sent Commodore Saltonstall their own petition. It outlined their frustration with delaying the attack, and listed a few risks with waiting. Specifically, the increased danger men faced by allowing the British time to prepare their defenses and to develop a more detailed strategy. The tactfully written petition was signed by 32 officers from 11 privateer ships. Saltonstall heard the frustration and concerns from his officers and privateers. On July 27th, a council of war was summoned again to decide how to proceed. They assembled on the Warren, and the decision was made to deploy the landing party first before attacking the British ships. 227 Continental and Massachusetts Marines attacked with support from 850 militiamen and 80 of Colonel Paul Revere's cannoneers. The attack was scheduled to begin at midnight that night, and the landing party was supported by all naval and privateer ships available. Landing units were split into three groups and attacked in three different locations. The 227 Marines were responsible for the right flank of the landing zone, and they were led by Marine Captain John Welsh. Militiamen and Paul Revere's cannoneers, now armed with muskets, attacked from the front. The remaining militiamen attacked from the left flank and were led by Colonel Mitchell. At midnight, the amphibious assault began, and the landing party faced their first challenge. They had a hard time boarding the flat-bottom boats, which caused a significant delay. Men were getting frustrated. Most had little to no sleep the night before, and now some of them were being forced to squeeze into small boats and stand for hours. They were three hours behind schedule, but the boats finally organized offshore, just out of reach from musket fire. 
Supporting the landing party and aligned directly off the beaches were the Hazard, Active, Tyrannicide, and the Charming Sally. Once everyone was in position, the attack started with an order to fire into the woods. The purpose of this attack was to eliminate enemy hiding in the forest. The order was immediately followed and the attack began. The supporting four ships instantaneously started firing. To help minimize the impact of defensive British fire, the Warren started to attack the ships with long-range cannon fire. This caused the enemy to move farther up the harbor to defend against the incoming volleys. More American ships supported the attack and fired additional shots towards the forest. The damage caused by American firepower was impressive. The blast from the cannon fire was heard for miles and everyone within sight of the battle heard the recognizable sound of trees falling and branches being ripped off. At 0500, the sun started to rise and the landing party received help from Mother Nature with the light fog to help provide some stealth. The shore was covered with defending British soldiers. As the flat-bottomed boats closed in, the enemy commenced a full-on defensive attack on the approaching Americans. Marines witnessed musket balls hitting all around their flat-bottomed boats, some of the shots finding their targets. Without much of an option, men jumped from their boats and towards the musket fire. The incoming fire caused some confusion, and it took the men a few seconds to organize and take cover. The orders were to head to shore and assemble in the line of battle, but the suppressing fire from the British, coupled with the nearly vertical cliff wall, stopped the formation from happening. The landing party faced a steep cliff, and waiting at the top were British soldiers firing down. Americans had no other option and started to climb the wall. They slowly ascended the cliff, one hand after the other, hoping they wouldn't be one of the unfortunate men picked off by the incoming musket fire. Out of the three divisions attacking the British, the Marines arguably had it the worst. The center attack and the left flank faced relatively new soldiers from the 82nd Regiment, and the Americans were able to easily overrun their positions since many of the British retreated. The Marines faced a different crew. A small force of 20 British soldiers, led by Sir John Moore, protected the harbor. Unlike their counterparts, they didn't retreat and they held their position. They returned fire from a very close range. The Marines were in a dire situation. Captain Welsh was one of the first to fall and he was killed by a single shot. His lieutenant, William Hamilton, was included as one of the casualties and he lay at the bottom of the cliff severely wounded as well. As the Marines continued to advance, the other two landing parties started to circle the defending British. Seven British soldiers were killed during this engagement. The Americans gathered into formation at their landing site and took account for their damages. A total of 34 men were killed or wounded, eight of which were Continental Marine privates who served on the Warren. Several Marines under Lieutenant William Down moved towards the forest near the fort, but support from the Navy didn't come and they were forced to halt. The British anticipated the Americans attacking the fort immediately after they secured their landing spot. They started to prepare for the advancing Marines. Apparently, the British weren't too confident in their ability to defend the fort. While his men were preparing to defend against the Americans, 
General McLean stood by the flagpole, preparing to lower British colors. Americans had superior numbers, and taking the fort seemed like the most probable outcome of this battle. The Continental Fleet had the responsibility of attacking the British ships in the harbor. This attack minimized the chances of a naval bombardment on land troops, but it never happened. As with previous decisions, Saltonstall hesitated. The incoming flanking fire from British ships caused hesitations from the officers on the ground. Without support from the Navy, they didn't advance towards the fort. They stopped their attack at the top of the cliff and quickly set up defensive positions. One thing we're taught as Marines is that indecisiveness will get you killed on the battlefield. During the heat of battle, there is rarely an opportunity to brainstorm a new plan or assemble a council to discuss the best way forward. Statistically, any decision will result in less death compared to doing nothing. This philosophy is so important that it is taught during active shooter drills. Just do something. But this wasn't the case with Saltonstall. His hesitation started to cost lives. Americans had to attack from a distance, and orders were given to deploy cannons to shore. This was a challenge, and most of the men on shore were busy supporting this new plan. By late afternoon, the Warren started to advance towards the British ships in the harbor, but she was stopped before much progress was made. Volleys were exchanged, but the Warren took the brunt of the damage. She suffered two shots through the mainmast, one in the bowsprit, and one through her forestay. All of this damage occurred in less than 30 minutes and caused Saltonstall to retreat and anchor offshore. The assault started off in the Americans' favor, but after some hesitation by Saltonstall, they are now in defensive positions, unable to advance on British forces. The next couple of days were a standstill. American artillery eventually made it to shore, and they set up on top of the hill. They entrenched the artillery lines for added protection against British cannon fire, and the Americans adopted a defensive position instead of their original offensive plan. To better understand what the British were up to, reconnaissance parties were sent to gather intelligence and test out their lines. Nothing significant came out of those patrols. Another council of war was held on July 29th, and the decision was made to build a fort. It was constructed at the secured site and outfitted to support continuous, heavy gunfire on the British. Captain Salter from the Hampton and Captain Thomas from the Vengeance were tasked with building this fort. Each ship provided eight enlisted and one officer. By this time, impatience started to set in again. Most of the Americans on shore weren't military. They served in the militia, and they weren't used to the discipline and structure the Continental military was practicing leading up to this battle. As a result, they started to get frustrated with the process and becoming hard to control. General Lovell had to continually remind the troops on shore that none of them were allowed to leave. As frustrated as they were, they needed to wait it out or face significant consequences to the American cause. A week later, not much progress was made, and the plan of attack started to fall apart. Men were impatient, morale was extremely low, and there wasn't a plan to retake the offensive. As each day passed, 
the threat of additional British reinforcements increased, and everyone knew it. General Lovell wrote a letter to Commander Saltonstall about the situation. In his letter, he bluntly requested the Continental Navy to enter the harbor and destroy British warships. Again, Saltonstall hesitated, and on August 6th convened another council of war to decide on what to do. They decided against attacking the British ships in the harbor, and responded to Lovell that an attack on the British fleet will start after he stormed the fort. When Lovell received the news, he immediately summoned a council of his own. It was unanimously decided that this would not happen. There were too many risks at stake, and it would be a death trap without support from the Continental Navy. Throughout this battle, General Lovell was in constant communication to authorities in Massachusetts. He was informing them of the progress, something Saltonstall had been overlooking. Lovell reported Saltonstall's behavior and the lack of development during the battle. This caught the attention of the Navy Board. They wrote a letter to Saltonstall on August 12th, commenting on his lack of correspondence with Boston and his hesitation. They advised he act quickly, since British reinforcements are probably on their way and would arrive soon. The Massachusetts Council was more direct and requested reinforcements from General Horatio Gates. However, reinforcements never arrived. Gates and his men were in Providence, and arranging logistics in such a short amount of time wasn't possible. From here on out, things started to fall apart. The hesitations and disagreements resulted in daily councils. Every meeting ended without a plan. Instead of working together, land units and naval forces started to despise each other, and soon, the Council of Wars was held independently. Now it was Friday the 13th, and the battle was going on close to three weeks. The hesitations from the American military allowed the British forces to strengthen their defenses. As the Americans finished their assault plans, a dense fog lifted and British vessels were spotted entering the lower bay by the active and the diligent. The diligent quickly turned and sounded the alarm. Saltonstall gave up too much time. On July 28th, British commanders in New York received word that the Americans were in Penobscot Bay and they sent a powerful Navy squadron to help out. It was commanded by Sir George Collier, a highly experienced and one of the most successful British naval commanders during the American Revolution. His fleet consisted of seven powerful ships, and they left August 3rd and headed for Penobscot. The American naval fleet had numbers in their favor, but the British ships were heavily armed and had 1,530 men who were very experienced. It started to rain. The rainstorm was short but extremely intense, which helped out the Americans. As the rain stopped, a thick fog developed and lasted until nightfall. Land units used this opportunity to abandon their secure spot, board boats, and head back to the Navy fleet. As morning came, the American fleet tried to form a fighting line, but the tides were too strong. The rough water didn't seem to impact the British, and their fleet quickly got into formation and advanced on the Americans. As the enemy approached, American ships split off and retreated. Most ships sailed upstream and hid in small inlets. 
The transport ships headed upstream as well, but without the protection of the armed vessels, they were quickly captured by the British. By darkness, most American ships were either destroyed by their own hands to avoid capture or confiscated by the British. On August 15th, a few American ships remained and hid in small inlets throughout the area. They too were destroyed by their crew as the British search parties closed in on their locations. The next day, the battle was over. Marine sailors and militiamen were scattered throughout the backwoods of Maine. They were trying to find their way home. During this engagement, the entire Massachusetts naval fleet was either destroyed or captured. Troops eventually started to show up in Boston during the first week of September. This battle was devastating to Massachusetts. The state agreed to reimburse the owners of all but four ships for damages and losses suffered. The ship losses alone cost more than one million pounds, but this didn't include the cost of provisions, payrolls, and other expenses for this expedition. Governor Weir of New Hampshire estimated the cost at four million pounds for the country and seven million pounds for Massachusetts. Someone needed to be held responsible for such a costly and potentially avoidable failure, and court-martials were held in Massachusetts. The two generals, Lovell and Wadsworth, were tried and cleared of any charges. Commodore Saltonstall was up next on the chopping block, and he was tried by a board consisting of Navy commissioners. Saltonstall was found guilty and declared unfit to command another Continental vessel. Paul Revere was also tried, but he was cleared as well. The British stayed in Penobscot for many more years after this engagement. Congress and the committees discussed sending other continental ships to Penobscot, but a plan was never formalized. A fleet never sailed for Penobscot while the British were present. This was an upsetting battle and one of the greatest losses in American military history. When the battle started, Americans had superior naval power and they were able to secure an advantageous spot after scaling a steep cliff into enemy fire. Due to the hesitation from leadership, the tension between commands, inadequate or lack of communication, and insufficient planning, Americans gave up their lead. The exact number of losses isn't precisely known, but they exceed 100 and may have been close to 400. This was demoralizing to everyone involved and arguably had an impact on the way Marines were used in future engagements. Amphibious landings were Marines' bread and butter, but the outcome of the Penobscot expedition impacted the confidence of military leaders. Another amphibious landing of this size wouldn't be conducted again until the war with Mexico. About six months after the Penobscot expedition, Americans were expecting another British naval assault at St. John's Island near Charleston, South Carolina. Commodore Whipple was ordered to destroy all the ranges, such as the Beacon and Lighthouses, to prepare for war. Marines were hand-picked for this mission, and spent the next few days destroying a few landmarks. This did little to stop the advancing British, and Whipple had to retreat to the Cooper River to escape while destroying a few American ships in the process. This was one of the last times Marines served on board naval vessels. They were ordered to serve on shore and support the Army's frontline artillery units. Captain Palm's Marines were split between Craven's Battery and the Granville Bastion. The Marines serving on board the Providence were divided between the Exchange Battery and Bruton's Battery.
and Marines under Captain Aerosmith were assigned to Gibbs Battery. The British surrounded Charleston, and the fort surrendered without resistance on May 5th. Shortly after, the remaining American forces surrendered, and Charleston was taken. Initially, the terms of surrender required all American shipping in the harbor to be turned over to the British and take all Continental soldiers, sailors, and Marines as prisoners of war. Naval commanders sent a plea to the British, and they requested that the captured men, quote, return to our friends and connections in the New England states, where we promise to remain inactive to a proper exchange to have taken place. This request was granted, and the officers sailed north towards Philadelphia. Enlisted sailors and Marines had to wait another month until the British chartered ships to take them home. The capture of Marines in Charleston left only five detachments of Marines left in the war. They were serving on board the Alliance, Confederacy, Dean, Trumbull, and the Saratoga. We'll get into the fate of some of those Marines during our next episode. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we take a look at the few remaining Marines left in the American Revolution. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, Please contact us at historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.